If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did women in the 16th and 17th centuries deal with their periods? How did people think babies were made? And what was it like to give birth in a time before maternity wards and effective pain relief? For today's podcast, Professor Mary Fissel joined me to tell me more about women's reproductive health in the early modern Atlantic world. Please be aware that this conversation does include some discussion of abortions and maternal death. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be taking a look back today at the history of women's reproductive health. So when we ask our listeners on social media what they want to know about in history, in the whole of history, something that always comes up again and again is periods, contraception and childbirth. So we thought we would give the people what they want. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we also have a few uh, listener questions peppered in in the mix as well. So thanks to everybody that submitted them. So before we start, Mary, can you give us an idea of the scope of your research into this area, just so listeners know what to expect in terms of the time period and the geographical spread that we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Um, I'm a historian of medicine, trained as a historian of medicine, and I've worked for a while on the history of reproduction, women's health, etc. I sometimes say that, you know, ideally what I would like is to be eavesdropping in a birthing room in 1700. But historians, we don't get to do that. We have to kind of paste it together. So I work mostly on the British Isles, sometimes a little early America, 16th, 17th, 18th century, although recently I've spread my wings into the 19th and even the 20th. But it's very much geographically British Isles in America, sort of Atlantic world, you might say. Brilliant. So that's what people can expect today. And if we want to go beyond that geographical spread, hopefully we'll be able to cover that in future episodes. So as you mentioned there, you'd love to eavesdrop in an old birthing room. And that takes me on to my first point, really, which is that this is a really intimate, often intensely personal history. As a historian, what sources are there available to you? More than you might think, I would say. But um, sources are always a bit of an issue with something that is this personal and not usually granted the status of historically significant. So it's woven into the fabric of our lives, but it isn't necessarily considered 
of sufficient import to be recorded in, you know, the ways that traditional history would look to. From about the middle of the 16th century, we do have manuals about childbearing that are written for both midwives and for mothers. And we know that they were meant to be read by mothers, even though literacy was pretty limited. A couple of them even explained that the husband could read it aloud to his wife if she could not read. So it's meant for that kind of audience. Now that's a prescriptive text. By that, I mean, it tells you what to do and what to expect. That's not the same thing as lived experience, but that's something. And then in the early 18th century, we have a midwifery guide like that, but written by a woman, a midwife, that has actual cases in it. And that is gripping and horrible reading because it's really tough. But she describes actual cases. And so we really get that step closer to lived experience. We also have letters and diaries, which are usually, of course, by people of relatively elite status, because that's who could write, who had the time and the resources to have paper and ink and quills. And one of my favorite sources sort of is a bit like that, but there's a contested birth when Mary of Modena, James II's wife, gives birth to the so-called warming pan baby, which you know was the heir to the throne if it fact were her baby. And there we have a whole pamphlet detailing who was in the birthing room and what was going on. Now that's a royal birth. It's not every day, but I think it shows us some of the expectations. So if you look around, there are a few more sources than you might expect. And oh, my favorite, how could I forget? Broadside ballads that were sung in the street, sold for a halfpenny, are often about love and courtship and sex. So not so much about childbirth, but again, they cover so many different topics that sometimes you can find a little nugget. So if we are going to look at these sources, what do they tell us about theories about fertility at the time? That's a great way of asking that question because fertility was really important. Every book about midwifery deals with what they called barrenness, what we call infertility. And remember, it's still a medical mystery today. Um, Something like a third of all cases, doctors don't really have a good answer for. So equally mysterious then. There are some interesting sort of diagnostics in some of those books. My favorite one has a man and a woman have to each have a little seeds in a pot of earth, and then they water it with their urine, and whichever plant grows, that's the fertile partner. (laughs) So it's this beautiful relation to the natural world where we are like plants in some way. It's so sort of symbolic. So fertility is really important. The other side of the coin, of course, is contraception. And that's rather less discussed. So the books that I work with in the 17th and 18th centuries will sometimes say, don't take this if you're pregnant, it wouldn't be good for you. Or it'll suggest things to help you conceive. It won't talk about not conceiving. That's just not a menu item. It's not until the early 19th century, the 1820s, that contraception as a thing actually happens as a concept. And I actually think that the idea of it was as radical as the practice. Well, I definitely want to talk about contraception in some more detail later, but how good was the understanding of the ways in which women's bodies worked in this period? Well, it was very different to ours, that's for sure. And I think that a lot of medical theory in that period 
explain the lived experience of the human body pretty well. It doesn't really equate with what we think today. For example, they thought that women were the most fertile right at the end of menstruation. That's not what we think. That being said, women probably menstruated a lot less frequently than they do today. Why would that be? Well, first of all, women spent a larger part of their reproductive life pregnant or breastfeeding. And breastfeeding sort of damps down fertility. Many women were malnourished, and that meant that their menstrual cycles might be much less regular than we're told ours are supposed to be today. So that meant that they would have less opportunities of getting pregnant, if you will. That's so interesting. We have a few questions about period specifically. So one of our listeners, Victoria, on Instagram, she asked what guidance was given to women about menstruation. And I guess this could be from professionals, this could be from um, family members, community figures. I presume they would all tell you different things. Well, that's one of the larger silences that we have. And that's because I think this advice was given early. You were told it wasn't written down so much. What we see in print is really, I think, a kind of collection of misogynistic ideas about menstruation. The idea that, for example, a woman couldn't look in a mirror because the mirror might crack, or she shouldn't walk on grass because the grass would die if she had her period. Now, as women, we have to just laugh, right? Because women did not disappear for five days a month and not walk on grass and not do domestic chores and not do all these things. So I read that as very much a kind of deep-rooted fear of the female reproductive body that's really a product of ignorance, where men especially knew very little about the workings of the female body, I think. And so they tell these stories that don't have much grounding. How were periods understood by those who wrote medical tracts? Well, they were totally integrated into the theory of the body that was current, which was humoral medicine. So in this theory, women are naturally colder and wetter than men. And that makes sense because if you're going to plant a seed, you want it in cold, wet ground, then it will flourish. You don't put it in hot, dry ground where it'll shrivel up and it won't ever grow. So it made logical sense to agrarian people. But because she's cold and wet, she digests her food less completely than do men. So when you digest your food, it's turned into the four humors, which are the basis of your body. And it's as if men cook a little hotter And so they cook more completely and they make more of their food into the humors. So for women, there's more leftover or what they call plethora. It's a kind of excess. And so that excess has to come out of the body or it'll kind of stagnate in there and do bad things. So that's why women menstruate. They get rid of the plethora every month in that way. Now, when you're pregnant, that plethora instead feeds the fetus. And then afterwards, it can also sort of blood can turn into breast milk. So it can transform and feed the baby in that way. So it makes sense that the body has a logic of its own. It makes sense within humoral theory. Yeah, that does make sense in a way. So um, another of our Instagram followers has asked a more practical question, which is how women dealt with their periods. Oh, if only we knew. What a great question. Because one of the puzzlers here is that women didn't wear underwear as we know it. They wore shifts, which were long undershirts, usually made of linen. 
And, you know, if you were on the nicer side, you changed it maybe twice a week and you slept in it. Maybe you had another one to sleep in if you were better off, but mostly that was sort of your second skin. It was your undergarment. But that meant that women weren't wearing pants of any kind. So it's a bit of a puzzler exactly how they managed it. I've always assumed it's some combination of straps and natural materials like hay and straw. Fabric's expensive, so there's fabric in there somewhere, but I think we can hypothesize. But again, this is something that doesn't enter the written record. And I guess that there's no material evidence of any of that kind of thing, early sanitary products. If there is, we haven't understood it when we saw it. So maybe it's there and we just haven't recognized it, but no. So I know this might be going slightly beyond your realm of expertise, but when did sanitary products, as we might vaguely recognize them today, start to be introduced? Oh, that's pretty late, like late 19th century, early 20th. But, um, you know, in the intervening years, fabric becomes much cheaper because weaving becomes automated and spinning becomes automated. So it's largely cloth towels for the 19th century. And so you've spoken about early equivalents of sanitary pads, but I guess most people would be familiar with tampons, but I'm guessing that no evidence of any kind of equivalent to something like that has been found. Correct. Correct. Never seen anything like that. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Silence doesn't mean absence, but not so far as we know. I don't think women were encouraged to be familiar with the interiors of their bodies, Um, And perhaps given the lack of hand washing, et cetera, that's just as well. So I just don't think it was in their imagination, to be honest. Um, I don't see, for example, for various kinds of reproductive ailments, I don't see tampon-like things being used or recommended. So it just doesn't seem to be part of the universe, as far as I know. Marie Claire on Instagram actually has a great question, which is, Were there any ways of treating period pain that people turned to before pain medications? Again, there's huge silence there. There's huge silence. So my hypothesis is yes, but it didn't get written down. It got sort of told mother to daughter, sister to sister. Pain relief is really absent or very low level in the period we're talking about. It's one of the puzzlers for medical history. How did people cope? Willow bark, the ancestor of aspirin, maybe, but I've not seen it um, written down. So again, a complete mystery. Okay. Um, So we've spoken a little bit about fertility, but just to return to that, and then we'll talk about contraception. How did most people think that babies were made and grown inside the body? Well, there's two main theories And often they get sort of mixed up in a book. It's not like you really had to pick one or the other. People seem to have sort of hybridized them. So in the first theory, there's male and female seed, and they meet in the womb. And there's sort of a mini contest of strength between the male and female seed. And whosever seed prevails, that's what the sex of the new baby is going to be. So it's a, in some ways, a fairly egalitarian model of the creation of a fetus, right? Male and female seed meet, as it were, on equal ground. Of course, then the fetus develops within the mother's body, and so the womb adds another kind of influence to the form of that unborn child. But so very much male and female seed meet. Women have to reach orgasm during sex to emit seed. So again, there's a kind of valuation of women's pleasure in a kind of equal way to men's. So that's that model. The other model that's often associated with Aristotle has very different relations where 
men provide the seed and women provide the raw material. And in this case, the raw material is often imagined as menstrual blood. And so men's seed is the good one. It's the blueprint. It's the architect. It's the plan. And women are just like the bricks and mortar, their contribution. So there's a clear hierarchy of value there. Now, I would point out you need both, right? You can't build a house just with blueprints. You need the bricks and mortar. But from their point of view, the blueprint was the important part. And the bricks and mortar were clearly second rate. And in fact, Aristotle went so far as to say that if reproduction works perfectly, you would always get a male. Now, he did recognize that without women, there would be no new babies. So there were a lot of fails. A bit of a flaw in the system there. Right, but basically daughters were plan B in that model. And so that's a much more hierarchical way of understanding what's going on. But I think both of these are stories that people are telling about what's going on inside the womb that nobody really knows. They're they're narratives that are really about the relationships of men and women, sort of told in miniature, imagined within the womb as like a little theater. And, you know, that gives you a lot of room to think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In some ways, I think there are elements that we still have and sort of surprising ones. And even modern medicine hasn't made the whole thing transparent by any means. To pick up on something that you just mentioned there, which I think a lot of people might be surprised by, and it's something we've had questions in on, you said that there was a belief that a baby could not be conceived unless the woman orgasmed in sex. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that idea, because it seems to run counter to what we might think about gender relations and women's sexuality in this period. Sure. And I think sometimes people read back a kind of Victorian prurience onto the earlier time period, which frankly isn't true of the Victorian period as much as you might think, but definitely not true earlier. In sort of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, women are the lustier of the two sexes. The one you have to watch out for is a widow because she's known the pleasures of the marriage bed and she wants more. So they definitely thought women were much lustier than men and much more dangerous in that regard. So the idea of both partners achieving sexual pleasure has to do, again, with heat. Heat is the source of life. And so both people have to reach this heat for the seed to be emitted so that there can actually be a new being. So it's very much about the physiology of warmth and heat. Now, there is a downside that may have already occurred to you, which is that if a woman got pregnant as a result of being raped clearly she had granted consent because she'd experienced pleasure. So that's just deeply, deeply iniquitous. So the theory comes with some real downsides, but it is believed that this is how it worked. All of these theories that we've discussed, do we have any sense of how much these were known and talked about by ordinary people, not medical people who are investigating women's bodies? Say, If you were a young, unmarried woman, how much knowledge might you have about sex and reproduction? And can we tell as historians? Oh, if only we could know more. But we do know some things. We can figure some things out. The way in which the sort of blueprint model was often explained 
was in the most homely of domestic analogies. For example, the way when you add rennet to milk, you can make cheese. The rennet is the male plan. The milk is just the female matter. And I think metaphors, and that goes way, way back. That's like an ancient metaphor. But I think in a dairying community, that would make a lot of sense to people. That really, that homely metaphor suggests to me that these theories had a bit wider purchase than you might think. And certainly the books that were targeted at non-medical readers, that were targeted to women, very much explained these theories. They always talked about conception. So they were out there in print for people who were consuming advice literature. But you raise an important question, which is about unmarried women. Because I think there is something of a divide between the knowledge married women are presumed to have and the knowledge unmarried women have. And for that reason, it's a little harder to know about unmarried women. Married women, they were the target audience for this kind of advice book. And so if it were read to them or they could read it, they would know they would have access to this information. It's so tantalizing, isn't it? You mentioned at the start of this conversation, contraception. So I wonder if we can return to that now. What methods of birth control would people turn to in this period? I think even thinking about birth control is sort of using a modern category. And we have to remember that's not actually perhaps the most useful category. They were more concerned, as I said, often with fertility or even with um, making sure they could have a girl or a boy as they chose. Lots of these books give you methods for conceiving in a way that you will have one or the other. It usually involves the left side and the right side and which side you're lying on because one side will make girls and the other side will make boys. So, you know, that's their concern. In terms of preventing pregnancy, for a lot of the time period I study, it's really taking medicines that could either be provoke an early termination or something like that, rather than actually preventing fertilization at all. The one method that was extant in the 17th and 18th centuries is the condom. It's made of animal guts, but it's really understood as a venereal disease preventive, not as much as a contraceptive. And because it was associated with venereal disease, it was associated with prostitution, and so it was shameful. It was nothing that a nice married woman would want to be thinking about or maybe even know about. So that's probably not it. What happens in the 1820s is that a couple of methods get promoted that are newly available or newly understood. One of them is the use of a sponge, and they recommend soaking a sponge in vinegar or some other you know, mildly acid solution that will both act as a barrier and a spermicide. And the idea is that women could do that possibly without even their partners knowing. Do we have any um, idea of whether that would be successful, effective? Yeah, it could be. It could be. And again, I mean, successful may mean postponing rather than completely succeeding. It may be creating birth intervals rather than actually not having a child at all. They thought it was effective, let's put it that way. Um, They also mentioned the age-old method of withdrawal, which could be effective. Again, something might not really kind of rate in our day because its success rate would be too low, but compared to nothing, it actually looks pretty good. 
And so those methods, they make birth control an actual option in the 19th century. Sometimes they also, by mid-century, especially in the United States, um, douching right after sex was really considered a very effective method. Again, we wouldn't recommend it today, but they saw it as having potential. You mentioned in your answer there that this might often be a case, rather than birth control, of looking for ways to terminate a pregnancy. What would have some of the options been available there? And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the social context surrounding abortion as well. That is a really rich topic and in America all too relevant today. So I've been actually working on the history of abortion because I think it's something we need to understand the history of much better. And I would argue that abortion has been a procedure that many people haven't liked over the course of time, but what they don't like is very different. Like today, abortion is interpreted as killing a fetus, to be blunt. That's not how it was understood in the past, necessarily, or not what was wrong with it. That's for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was really hard to determine pregnancy because, you know, today we have test strips. If we live in the developed world, they didn't have test strips, obviously. Midwifery manuals give a lot of advice about signs of pregnancy. And it was widely believed that women would know right after sex that they had conceived. It's really interesting to us. You felt this little shiver, supposedly, and this, this strange feeling, and then you would know. But actually, you wouldn't know you were pregnant until quickening when the fetus moves within the mother's body and the mother can feel that. And that's like four and a half months. So that's a really long time to not know. So it seems that there was a lot of attention to returning a woman's body to regularity in terms of menstrual flow. So if your period didn't come when it was supposed to come and it didn't come, then your body wasn't getting rid of that plethora I mentioned before, and you needed to get back into being regular. So people, women took medication, took herbal preparations that were designed to return menstrual flow, but we might understand as early abortifacients. And the same plants have been known since antiquity. And they do, in fact, stimulate the uterus to contract. The problem is the safety is really difficult to ascertain. There's a little window between enough and dangerously too much. And that was really the problem, that they weren't safe. In some, some cases, like an unmarried woman might be all too worried about what might be happening and want to take these medications to be sure she wasn't pregnant. Or there really could be not knowing like, it could be pregnancy, but it could just be that period is delayed. Let's take this and cure this problem without ever having to fully commit to what your body was actually doing. And I think that's hard for us to really understand and wrap our minds around because we're used to a level of certainty that just did not obtain then. So I think there's a lot of this ambiguity going on. Um, so mostly what we know is the rare moments when women get in trouble for this kind of activity or something goes seriously wrong. And once we get to the 19th century, especially once it's possible to buy preparations of arsenic at a chemist's, there we see really tragic results where women die from having taken too much, sometimes pressured into it by their lovers. And probably 
women who took some of these preparations earlier may have also died because, again, the safety is really hard to ascertain. But we know a little bit less about that. So what we know about abortion in this time period often comes from really tragic moments where the woman didn't survive. And that's a tip of an iceberg. We can't even begin to understand, you know, what the actual numbers would have looked like or, you know, how prevalent these practices were. For pregnancies that did go ahead, um, our listener Trace has a question, which is before ultrasounds and all the tests that we have available today, how did midwives or mothers themselves ascertain the health of babies? Were they in the dark completely? Well, they were mostly in the dark. One of the things they wanted to ascertain, just like today, was was it a boy or a girl? And so some books do suggest these different... I mean, I think you could still hear this in a supermarket line today, honestly, about, you know, well, if it's carried like this, it means this, or if it's carried like that, it means that. Um, So that was something they wanted to know. There were concerns about pregnant women staying healthy, and they got advice that sounds sort of familiar about eating properly and getting exercise and rest. So very familiar sounding things that pregnant women should do. I think today the fetus, the unborn child, is already conceived of having its own identity much earlier in the pregnancy than it was in the past. And so in the past, if the mother was healthy, the baby was healthy, healthy, I think was the sort of thinking there. So really it was about care of the self in a way that we have a much more individuated understanding. And when it came to the birth process, what might that look like? Um, Were most women giving birth at home at this time and who was involved? Well, the sort of model birth, if you will, like what was supposed to happen was that uh, before a woman went into labor, she would have already invited a few women to be with her during the birth process. And this was almost always at home. And so she would have invited family members, like sisters or mother, friends, you know, a little group of women. They were known as the gossips which is where our modern word of gossip, meaning sort of salacious tittle-tattle, comes from. Because men imagined that women were telling stories about them during those long hours of labor, which, you know, I think is, tells you a lot about men's imaginations, not so much about those conversations. So when a woman went into labor, someone would send for the midwife and the gossips, and they would all be there together. And there was a series of preparations done for some reason, they wanted to darken the room. They like put, um, like covered the windows. Not that they had so many windows, but they would darken the room, stoke up the fire, prepare the bed. Now, women labored sometimes in birthing chairs and sometimes in bed. Different positions were used, often depending on what the woman chose. And they made a special drink called caudle, which was sort of warmed wine with some oats in it, I think. So kind of warm, sustaining kind of thing that was only made for this event. Um, And then they waited it out. Um, The woman labored and the midwife, there's not a lot of intervention in childbirth as there would be today. Um, There's some, but not a lot. And so you mentioned there the midwife. Who would the midwife be and what would their their background be for for taking on that role? Well, ideally, midwives were older women who'd already born children themselves. 
that their bodies had had those sensations and experiences, which would help them understand what the birthing woman was going through. Very important. I also think there's a sort of respectability issue there. They're older, they're married, they've had children. Ideally, they trained as an apprentice with another midwife, and we know that that did happen. Sometimes that might be the midwife's mother was also a midwife. So we know that they could train in that way. And some midwives, I'm thinking of two, one in England that we know about and one in new United States, who had really good relationships with local medical men. So I think we have this myth that you know midwives were somehow antithetical to medical men, not necessarily. There could be a lot of mutual respect and understanding of what each other was doing. So ideally, that's what you would have, a well-trained midwife who had years of experience. Sometimes we think that they work as a deputy under another midwife, another word for kind of apprenticing, or today we think of it as sort of an internship. That's the ideal case. But As you might imagine, sometimes the midwife didn't get there on time, especially in a rural community. And this group of gossips, those women had seen a lot of births by the time they were older. So I think the threshold to start delivering babies was pretty low. And so it's easy to imagine a woman in a crisis delivering a baby and then thinking, oh, well, you know, I can help out. And then sort of building a practice that way. So... It, it, it's pretty open-ended, especially in the British Isles. On the continent, sometimes it's a bit stricter and midwives have to take exams and have to be registered in a different kind of way than here, but more open-ended in the Anglo-American world. I think a lot of women today would be fairly terrified about the prospect of giving birth without pain medication and without necessarily a qualified professional. But do we have any sense of how risky giving birth was at this time? It's really hard to run the numbers in any adequate way. The way I think about it is I think that all women were scared of dying in childbirth, which thankfully is very, very rare today. And they were scared about it for good reason. I did some, I ran some numbers once that suggested that if you lived in a sort of middle-sized village, you would probably have known a woman who died in childbirth over the course of your life. So it would have a reality for you. But the numbers were not as bad for maternal mortality as people feared. In other words, the fear was perhaps a little bit bigger than the actual risk. But as we know only too well from our lives today, humans are really bad at calculating risk. And they weren't any better then. And it's a legitimate fear. If you've known a woman who died that way, well, of course you'd be scared. And so we have a couple of little books that were written by women for their children who were scared they were going to die giving birth to their next child. And they wanted to leave advice for their children. That says to me, that's a pretty high level of concern. So that's maternal mortality. Infant mortality is just a really sad story. Um, infant and neonatal mortality is terrible. You know, it can be one in five. Um, don't make it to say their first birthday in really bad circumstances. That's malnutrition. It's, you know, bad management of birthing. It's a whole range of things. But yeah, infant mortality is just like the saddest of sad stories. 
And so finally, you've shared a lot of really eye-opening facts and anecdotes and stories with us today. But are there any final ones that you would give us as a, as a note to end on? One of the things that I think, again, is, um, is really difficult for us to imagine and makes me grateful for both feminism and for living what I do is the way in which sex and reproduction were always already entangled in the past that we live in a moment where those can be separated. And that's just not the way it was, that you couldn't think about, if you were a woman, you couldn't think about sex without thinking about possible babies, that that was always already there. And so I think understanding both sex and reproduction is really different when those cannot be separated in any way. We just live in a different moment, but that's really recent, right? That's incredibly recent. And so it's hard for us to imaginatively stretch to that other world. I think one of the only other things I would think about that might help our listeners is to remember that reproduction is still deeply mysterious today. We don't know everything. For example, medicine cannot adequately explain why labor starts. We just don't know that. And so... If it is mysterious in the past, it is still mysterious and powerful today. And in that sense, even though it's so, so, so different, in some ways, I think there are elements that we still have and sort of surprising ones. And even modern medicine hasn't made the whole thing transparent by any means. That was Professor Mary Fissel of John Hopkins University. If you found this conversation interesting, we've got plenty more material on both women's history and the history of medicine at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.